This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 8th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Modern conservatism is often confusing, and especially so with respect to the economy. Just what do the so-called new conservatives consider to be the proper role of government in the economy? Cato's Scott Lincecum and Norbert Michelle comment. It is getting more and more difficult to tell what people who, with a straight face, consider themselves conservatives... Uh, It's getting more and more difficult to tell what you can say with confidence about what conservatives believe. So, you know, I've talked with my friend Stephanie Slade at Reason about this on on multiple occasions about this sort of new conservatism. I think it's been described as post-liberal conservatives. So, Scott, what what do you know about uh, especially within your area of specialty trade? what conservatives believe today? It's a great question because it's difficult. If you listen to a lot of the new conservatives, they'll start out by saying uh, they still support free markets. They still support free trade generally. But, and then the but, uh, the laundry list after that uh, keeps getting longer. Um, You know, first it's but China, um, then it's but the com- our communities, but globalization, uh, and then you throw in uh, but semiconductors. Uh, there's so many uh, exceptions to the general rules that, the, of course, the exceptions kind of end up eating uh, the general rules. And and now um, it's very difficult to pin down where the line is. Um, it is not merely China. It is not merely semiconductors. Um, and and the line keeps getting pushed farther and farther to the point of uh, basically being worthless. Norbert, your thoughts on what, uh, you know, modern conservatives believe? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, Scott's depiction is quite accurate. It's very hard to tell now where this is all going. Um, the, the, the thing that's maddening to me is that uh, you you would have these debates with conservatives that have these feelings of these the, these exceptions to the market and you can easily point out that well what you're talking about's been screwed up because it hasn't been a free market uh it's been the opposite of a free market and you can go down the same list that Scott just ran down and see that but it's this weird refusal to acknowledge or just this willingness to ignore that reality and, you know, throw in another but, but, but we need more of this or we, we need more government involvement. We need more something. I get, I often get the sense that it's more political than anything else. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's just, maybe that's just my projection onto it, but I, I don't, I don't really feel as though I've been substantive, substantively engaged in the economic arguments, um, I, I feel as though it's it's gone more to the political side. Political, literally, being if you want to win an election, you need to do this kind of thing, which is to say, appeal to some subset of voters. Yeah, and, and that's, so to that's the, been it. Yeah, and so to the extent that uh, policy, uh, you know, interventions led by uh, the federal government have contributed to problems that we see in communities, in specific markets, uh, in the standard of living for some group of people. Uh, So many, so many people uh, on at least traditionally on the left would blame that on 
uh, people, well, like you guys, like Scott Lincecum and Norbert Michel, and saying <laughs> these market fundamentalists uh, are yep. hollowing out uh, parts of America and we need to get back to, you know, it's, it sounds like a, a, a 70s, 80s uh, left Democrat uh, set of priorities. Like, I can support markets to the extent that they don't contribute to these problems that we're seeing in America. Yeah, it, I mean, heck, uh, if you if you listen to some of the comments, uh, for example, uh, former U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer uh, just the other day decried consumerism and said that higher prices are good, uh, which, quite frankly, was basically what Bernie Sanders said about uh, Americans having too much deodorant, too many deodorant choices, right? Uh, I mean, the the horseshoe has pretty much on that one uh, come together. Um, and and it, you're you're right in case after case that uh, the m supposed market is radically free, um, and the solution is is more government intervention. And it's not just trade, but you can find it in antitrust or healthcare or, as Norbert well knows, financial services and Wall Street. Uh, in case after case after case, uh, the solution is always more government because apparently uh, there is none. And uh, you know, the as I, I tend to echo Norbert's view that a lot of this is political, but I don't think all of it is. I mean, I think there are some real challenges in U.S. labor markets. I think there is um, an em emotional uh, connection um, that a lot of people feel um, that, look, it's a very disruptive time, whether it's due to technology or trade competition or, you know, just, uh, of course, re more recently, the pandemic and other things. So there is, you know, these concerns out there. There are these worries. Uh, the the reality, though, is that there is no free market fundamentalism out there. You know, there is a lot of tariffs in place. There are a lot of subsidies out there. We've been trying to subsidize manufacturing in this country for decades. We've been, uh, you know, enact all sorts of policies to um, intervene and try to achieve these types of outcomes, and they keep failing. Uh, meanwhile, just as the world's becoming more disruptive, um, we've enacted all sorts of policies that make it really hard for people and companies to adjust um, and to move from place to place or job to job. Um, and those, again, those interventions are totally ignored. Uh, instead, it's, again, those those darned libertarians and uh, apparently low prices that are, that are the problem. Wow. Libertarians and low prices, the big problems in uh, America. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because uh, we've also seen uh, from, I think, similar quarters, correct me if I'm wrong, that libertarians have been running uh, things, at least as far as uh, the <laughs> conservative side of uh, the political spectrum for a long time. Uh, Norbert, when we try to separate the wheat from the chaff here, that is that is policy from the ideas that people adopt yeah. about what markets deliver, you know, to the extent yeah. that this is political, it's a political problem uh, that ought to be addressed. Yeah, I agree. It should be. Um, and it's funny how fast things change. <laughs> I mean, it you know, after the 08 crash, the 2008 crash, you had all that Tea Party movement type stuff. And um, the place that I used to work for, and we don't have to name it right now, um, there was a really big 
identification, a really strong identification with that movement. And there was a lot of effort in saying uh, publicly and, and using that campaign to say, this is the government is the problem. Government, too much government involvement is what got us here. And that's accurate. You know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, propped up by the government for years, blown up by the government. Uh, lots of other companies in that period propped up by the government, you know, and then you have low unemployment for another decade, or I'm sorry, low employment for another decade, long, long recovery. Um, and then all of a sudden in the same place that I worked for, uh, we forgot all of that. And <laughs> the, the campaign was no longer government is the problem. It was, how can we use the government to help? And it was almost indistinguishable from what was being said at Brookings. So, uh, Scott, when we talk about new con when you talk about new conservatives uh, in terms of a what they hang their hat on in terms of policy, uh, what is it? Well, I think it's the avoidance of disruption. Um, it is, you know, there's this uh, classic battle in economic policy between dynamists and stasists, right? This goes back Virginia Postrell's old book, The Future and Its Enemies. It's awesome on this. Um, I'm rereading it because it is, it's amazing how much the rhetoric from back then, which was mainly from the Democratic left, um, is being repeated today. But I, you know, the interventions are are not just, of course, trade. There's, um, and, but but that is definitely part of it. Protection, protection from competition. Um, everybody should have a, you know, nine to five unionized breadwinner job. Um, and of course, China's cheating us out of that um, uh, supposed workers' paradise. Um, but of course, there's immigration protection as well. Um, there is, but but also just protection from technological disruption from changing communities and social changes and all of this type of stuff, it really goes back to, look, the market is not providing a sound, stable, protected uh, uh, place for American families and for, let's face it, certain constituencies on the right. And thus, uh, we really need to start uh, flipping switches in government. We need to have, whether it's wage subsidies or tariffs or, or immigration restrictions or whatever, because the market isn't, isn't uh, achieving the social outcomes we want and that our voters are, are demanding. Uh, Norbert, to hear Scott's telling of it, it reminds me of a bit from uh, Ned Flanders uh, hearkening back to a time that only exists in the minds of us Republicans. <laughs> that might be it. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you look, if you go back and you read the stuff or, or pay it, you know, pay attention to what was going on in the early Clinton administration, you had Robert Wright coming out and saying all these things. And the only difference, the only, as far as I can tell, is that people at Brookings said, wait a minute. Well, the people in Germany and Japan would be would be really surprised to learn how successful their industrial policy is because it hasn't been. And now the people at Brookings are echoing the same thing um, that you're hearing on that Republican side. And I, I don't know. I really don't know how we got here, but here we are. Yeah. And I and I would just add that it's kind of been funny that especially, you know, the pandemic was really this radical shock to the U.S. economy in all sorts of ways. And it's actually been kind of funny to see how the rhetoric um, in the new right hasn't changed at all, even though right now, for example, 
there are like 850,000 job openings in the U.S. manufacturing sector. Um, unemployment is, of course, three and a half percent. We're one of the hottest, tightest labor markets in history. Um, the unemployment rate in in high tech jobs, right? We can't have any high skill immigration. Is like one and a half percent right now. Um, there are worker shortages, or at least those stresses everywhere. And yet we're still hearing about, you know, the need for like worker protections and all this as if it's still this post-Great Recession economy that did have a, a pretty, you know, depressed labor market. Um, and, and nothing has been updated, even though the facts have changed. A lot of people have uh, a similar story, which is, and I have one myself. I'm from a small town in southwest Missouri, Part of the military industrial complex was located in that small town uh, in southwest Missouri and uh, built it up. And it was a vibrant community. That company left. And uh, as I was growing up there in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, the town was appeared to be somewhat on the decline. And that has continued. And for uh, a lot of conservatives, uh, Tim Tim Carney, of course, has, has detailed a lot of this in himself. J.D. Vance, probably more, most notably, has detailed some of this as well. A lot of these communities have suffered. So to, to the extent that that is a story that has uh, traction, um, what do you say to those people? I mean, it it certainly tends to motivate a lot of the new right uh, economic policy, right? That that uh, these types of thing, you know, policies like trade or immigration liberalization or broader kind of macroeconomic stuff um, might be good for some, you know, the wealthy urbanite elites in Manhattan or whatever. Um, but they're terrible for our communities. Now, um, th- I think it's this suffers from from. A handful of, of big flaws. I mean, the first one is again, um, you know, all of these disruptions were happening at a time when we had trade and industrial policies and other protections in place. When immigration, as a share of you know the workforce, was declining, we still were having these problems in these communities. Um, but I think the other really fundamental thing is that the the bigger threat to these communities is not in China or Europe or wherever. It's in South Carolina, Arizona, and Texas, right? You know, the the fact is that there are a lot of places in the United States um, that have thriving industrial bases and booming economies. And that's mainly, you know, related to state and local policies and people's migration patterns, people moving to the Sun Belt and elsewhere. Um, So, you know, the competition with the Rust Belt um, is actually mainly coming from, from the Sun Belt. Um, which is, of course, never never mentioned, and, and that same type of disruption in, in that cross interstate trade, um, you know, happens in the international space. But the other thing is that there, you know, it's always ignored that there are a ton of communities in the United States that were kind of older industrial cities that have completely adapted and are now thriving. Um, you know, you hear about places like Pittsburgh going from a steel town to being now focused on medical innovation and the rest. Um, but there are tons of these places across the country in the Rust Belt and and out that have um, been hit by shocks that are inevitable, shocks that are generally good for the U.S. economy. Um, but then they they sucked it up and they moved on. Um, and they're now once again thriving, doing other stuff. My my favorite example out there is is Greenville, South Carolina, um, you know, which was once a textile town, which was uh, really hit hard 
by trade and textiles um, as those jobs moved to Mexico or offshore or wherever, um, but is now a thriving um, a city with a very diverse uh, uh, industrial base in services and the rest, a very cool kind of uh, trendy hipster downtown. Um, and yet there are other places that like, you know, say Youngstown, Ohio, that are still stuck in this kind of old industrial mindset, despite the fact that presidents and politicians have for ever promised that they were going to revive good old Youngstown and the, and the the Rust Belt and other places um, with their interventionist policies that, of course, again, have haven't done the trick. And at, a, and at a very micro level, so I don't disagree with anything Scott just said. And to go a little deeper on one pe one piece of it, um, you you have this sort of on this new right, you have this sort of condescension almost, uh, or I don't know what maybe that's not the right word for it, but it, these are people who are never going to be working on an assembly line, okay? Never. They have their lawyers, their <laughs> their political consultants. They have no idea what it means to work in a factory eight and twelve hours a day, none whatsoever. Um, you know, and then if you flip it, you, my dad. You know, so like I came from a rougher town. You know, my dad was a mechanic. If you come look at somebody in West Virginia, you know, it's those parents are going to be the same. My dad didn't want me to be a mechanic. Those parents in West Virginia don't want their kids to grow up and have to work in the coal mines. They push them out so that you, you and then what these what these guys on the new right are effectively saying is, no, you don't get to make that decision. We need those manufacturing jobs here. So you have to work in the coal mine. You have to work on the assembly line. Well, that's that's the opposite of freedom. That's the opposite of your ability to control your own life. And that's a serious problem. And, you know, for a, a conservative movement that supported, supposedly believes in things like, you know, human agency and uh, the ability of individuals to better themselves through through freer, uh, through freedom, free markets and the rest, um, it is kind of an oddly, it's not just romanticized, uh, but it's oddly paternalistic, right? They know what's best. They know the jobs that are best. You know, never mind that, you know, I'm, I'm working on this new book where we find that um, there are four times as many blue-collar, male-dominated jobs and services than there are in manufacturing. And these are all sorts of, you know, good-paying jobs that, that don't involve an assembly line. And yet, you know, again, the focus here is on uh, bringing back these these uh, routine jobs that that just aren't aren't you know that don't really exist anymore. And when the the flip side of it, uh, you're talking about human agency. The flip side of it is the, the sort of the question of what government is for. And uh, yeah. there to for these new conservatives, as there have been for sort of a, a harder version of the left in uh, previous times and today, it is for delivering prosperity rather than uh, merely right. enabling people to go after it themselves. Yeah, and, yep. and, it, and it risks, I think, um, uh, running into not just economic distortions, but um, th there's just the political problems with this as well in terms of, um, you know, it's so easy to co-opt this type of language and then for just a lot of good old-fashioned pork barrel spending and the rest. I mean, you look at, you know, the chip subsidies out there right now, um, you know, this is being uh, 
boosted as some sort of you know working class revolution industrial policy. Um, yet uh, you know it was subject to some of the highest lobbying expenditures ever by massive multinational corporations like Intel and Samsung and and the rest. Um, you have uh, the steel industry, of course, is a massive DC political player um, and is still. Uh, banking on this kind of, you know, pro-worker conservatism to get even more tariffs and subsidies across the line. Um, and yet, you know, the the number of jobs available in these industries are, are paltry um, compared to the rest of the U.S. economy, which, of course, suffers from, from these things. Scott Lincecum directs the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Norbert Michel directs Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.